At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. All right, as you're in Matthew 18, I want to just give you something to think about this morning, about the way in which it's possible for two people to have similar, to do similar things, but yet have different experiences. For example, let's say you have a person that, that wants to grow and uh, work out and all that, and so they go to the gym, and they start lifting weights, and they walk through the routine, and by the end of it, they've, they've lifted weights, they've sweated, and they feel better about themselves, and then they go into their car and they drive home. That's one experience of doing uh, the work and working out. Now imagine there's another person that goes and works out, but they work out with their team. Now they're going to do the same things. The routines are going to be the same. They're going to lift the same amount of weights. They're going to sweat and they're going to do that. But their experience is going to be different because they're not only doing it individually, but their activity is a part of something bigger. So their contribution to their own individual growth is actually helping the betterment of the team. Does that make sense? And there's camaraderie there. There's, there's people that know you and know your story there. And they, they can personally encourage you because they know at the beginning of the season you could lift this amount of weight. And now near the end of the season, you now can lift a lot more. And so there's this shared experience that you have. And though they're doing the same things, the way each of these people um, experience that, it's going to be different. I use that I bring that up because let's take this example and apply it to how people view the church. And when we think about the church, some see the church as a personal endeavor. They see the church as an opportunity for them to walk in and to grow and develop in their relationship with the Lord, where they can um, gain more access to the Bible and deeper understanding of the Bible. And they want it to be a place where they can personally grow. Now, that's good, right? That's, that's a good thing. That's what we desire is that to be a place where people can come, where they hear the word proclaimed, where they can be involved in actually touching the word through a Bible study. We, we want to be that place. But I think if that's the only way that you view the church, you're missing out. Because the church is not specifically or simply a personal endeavor. The church is a community. It's it's a place where we come together and we share experiences and we spur one another on towards love and good deeds, where there's encouragement, where there's prayer, where you're known. People know your story. People know how to encourage you. And people are blessed because they see Christ working in you. And so when I look at the Bible, I see that this second idea, this seeing the church as a community, is presented more than seeing the church individualistically. 
Now, this is deeply challenging because we live in a deeply individualistic world where we're taught over and over again that you don't need anybody, you do it all by yourself, be your best person, you can do it all by yourself. Where instead, other cultures understand community, right? And I think the Bible is clearly teaching us to live in community together. The challenge is, is that to see the church individualistically is highly efficient. Right, to see the church as, an in, as individualistically is highly efficient. Because if you're here just for your growth and all of that, that's great. You can grow, you can become a spiritual giant, but you're going to be a spiritual giant all unto yourself. And that's efficient. But community is messy. Right, communities, have you ever tried to get along with family? Right, like I guarantee you that your, your story is pretty similar to mine, that when you guys gather together as family, things are good until you talk about a couple of things. Right, there are things that we don't talk about, right, when you go to family functions. And as soon as they get brought up, immediately there it goes. People start shutting down, ta- uh, tables get turned, other things happen, and we stop talking to each other for six months, right? It's my only family that's like that. Right, community is messy, right? It's, it's messy to do the work of ministry, to live in the church and community and see each other as family. It's messy, and some people are like, hey, you know what, I, I, I don't have time for that. Well, I wanna encourage you, even in the messiness of the church, there's beauty and there's great blessing because it reminds us in church community that we are not alone. And last week, we started a series uh, entitled Conflicted, where we're trying to take a look at Jesus' teaching on how we're supposed to live together in this thing called the community or inside this thing called the church. And knowing that there's going to be conflict, that your life and my life, as we live them together, I'm a different person than you. And if we live in this thing called community, eventually we're going to butt heads, Eventually, we're going to disagree. Eventually, I'm going to hurt your feelings. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. I've been there. You've hurt my feelings. But Jesus is giving us instructions in Matthew 18 of how we live together. How when I get offended, how can I work out that offense? Or when someone offends me or I offend someone, how do we work this out? How do we live in this community in the midst of conflict? You see, the world tells us one thing about conflict, right? That if someone ticks you off or someone harms you, that immediately you go from zero to 100 and you have the right to scream and yell and you can do all kinds of terrible things to other people and think the worst about other people. That's the way the world works. That's not the way the church works. So as Jesus, as we looked at our last series, as Jesus has come to establish the kingdom, his kingdom in the hearts of people, now in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching us how we're to live in this community. So that's, that's the whole point of this series, is how do we live in the midst of conflict? How do we care and how do we grow together as we honor the Lord together? And today, what we're gonna see, that as we live in this community, you and I both have roles. We have responsibilities. There are certain ways that we're supposed to carry ourselves. There are things that we're supposed to do for one another to see ourselves not as individuals, but as a part of the greater picture, the greater community. 
And today, what we're going to see, Jesus is teaching us that his followers should help build up and not hinder the faith of others. Your role as a follower of Christ inside this community is to help build up the faith of others, to not hinder the faith of others. And we're going to unpack that today. Today we're going to see how Jesus gives us two ways that we are to help build up the community of Christ. Two things. Let's begin in uh, chapter 18, verse 7. We're going to see the first, that we are called not to lead others into sin. The way we build each other up is not lead others into sin. Look at me in verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one who temptation woe to the one whom the temptation comes. So Jesus is here encouraging us as followers of Christ not to lead others into sin. Remember, Jesus is now picking up where he left off last week, where he says, It is far better for you to take a large stone. And take it around your neck and throw yourself in the heart of the sea. It's way better for you to do that than to cause one of the little children to sin or the little children to stumble. Right, so he's coming right off the heels of that. He's saying Don't, it's better for you to, 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 to die in that way than to cause one to sin. And so here Jesus is continuing and he gives us two warnings that are indicated with the same word. He says, woe. When Jesus says, woe, he's not telling the horse to stop. When Jesus says, woe, he's giving a deep word of intense anger or intense judgment. This is a word that he uses to his, his disciples. And Jesus has several of these key words that when he says them, the thought in the heart is to stop and listen. Because what Jesus is about to say is super important and it carries with it the gravity of judgment. So this is super big. And so Jesus gives a world. He first gives a woe and a warning to the world. What he's saying is, is woe to this human worldly system of human rebellion. This world, this kingdom of the world that's in rebellion against the Lord, he's saying, woe to the world for its temptation to sin. He's reminding us that we, as followers of Christ, live in a world where temptation is all around us. Where most simple things in life, the most uh, innocuous things in the life can be the most damaging things to us. Everything around you that you see, that you touch, can be a temptation. Why? Because everything in this world is corrupt. When sin entered into the world in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and rebelled against his desires, sin came in and everything was corrupted by sin. And so Jesus is here saying, woe to you, the world. Everything is out there is temptation. And he says, for it is necessary that temptation comes. Right? It's necessary. Until Jesus returns, until there's final peace, temptations are always going to be present in the world. Jesus says these temptations to sin are going to all be around. This word sin 
It's the word scandalon. That's the Greek word, which is where we get the English word scandal. It means that it's a sin, that it's a stumbling block, that it's a trap. This is not something that we want to mess around with. Right? If we were to have a, a big bear trap here that was, that, was, that was set and ready to go, you wouldn't be playing around with it. Right? You wouldn't be trying to like, press the center of it to get it to enact because that would be dangerous. Right? You, you would leave it alone. You would respect it because of the danger that is presented. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. There are things out here in the world that are dangerous that you don't want to play with because they will mess you up. Everything in the world will mess you up. But then Jesus goes on and gives us a second woe. He says, woe to the one in whom temptation comes. Woe to the one that brings temptation to another person. Now again, Jesus is not talking about the individualistic life. He's talking about inside this community of faith. We need to realize that you have the opportunity, which is not good, to be a temptation, to bring temptation to other people. He's saying, so woe to you. Be aware that your life is telling a story. Be aware that your life inside the community of faith is communicating to other people different things by your life and by your actions and by the things around you that it's possible for you, it's possible for me, to be a stumbling block to someone else. He's saying, woe to you. Be careful how you live because your life matters inside the kingdom of God, inside the church. Again, temptations all around us. As we live in this corrupt world, we are com- we are always and continually, constantly bombarded with temptations. Right? And I think if we look at every temptation, and I've said this before, but I think if you look at every temptation in the world that faces us every single day, it's this idea that Satan and the world wants us to believe one of two things about God. First, what God has given me is not good. Right? That's a, we see that all of the time. You listen to advertisements. They're like, you, you don't need God. In essence, they're not saying this, but this is what they're meaning. You don't need God. You need this product to be happy. Right? That's, in essence, that's advertisement, right? You need this to be happy. You need this to be satisfied. And so we are tempted to believe what God has given me is not good or what God has given me is not enough. Right? Happiness comes when you have more. When you have more. When you have better. And so you're, you're constantly trying to have more and trying to have better. And I think that's temptation skews our view of God. That's exactly what happened in the garden. Remember Satan was telling Adam and Eve what God has given you, this prohibition that God has given you is not good. Right? All of the other food that you could eat in the garden... God is withholding this one from you and that's not good, so he's not good. But then also he's not enough. Right? He's withholding something else from you. Right? For God knows that as soon as you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will see. Right? So tricking them to think that God is not good and God is not enough. I love what James 
Uh, chapter 1, verse 13 says this. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing. He says, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Did you see that? Temptation does not come from Jesus. Temptation, according to Jesus, is ever-present reality in the broken world that we live in. But the temptation is not coming from Jesus. Where's the temptation coming from? We're tempted when our own desires, right? Your desires to have more and to have enough and have things that are good, right? Those desires come from within. And when we have these desires and we feel like these desires are not being met by God, then we turn to the world. And this temptation that we have, we're in, we begin to engage our own desires and these desires when they give birth, when we think on them enough and we want them enough, then it impacts our actions. And so then we sin. And when we give ourselves over to sin, sin corrupts us even more and eventually sin kills us. So we are to be on our guard against giving in to the temptations individualistically, right? On your own, it is your responsibility to continue to guard your mind, guard your heart, and see where the temptations come so that you can avoid sin. We are to do this on our own because our lives impact others. Right? Your battle against sin, your battle against temptation, if you're in the battle, speaks highly for who you are. But also your giving in to the temptations also speak highly to who you are. I don't, don't have to fully illustrate this in, in a deep way, but I can give it to you in a very simplistic way. Children learn from their parents, Right? You watch, as a child, you watched your parents. And you said to yourself, hey, if it's okay for my parents to do it, it's okay for me to do it. If if my parents are involved in it, then it must be okay. Because my parents, who have been placed in my life to be the primary shapers of my faith, if they're doing it, then I can do it. The same holds holds true within the church. People are watching you. People are seeing your life and your life. If you're not careful with the things that you do and the ways that you live, people will see your life and they'll say, well, if it's okay for that person, if it's okay for my life group leader to do that, then it's okay for me to do that. If it's, if it's okay for my pastor to do that, then it's okay for me to do that. And so Jesus is saying, whoa, let's not tempt others to sin realizing that God calls us to a higher standard, not so that we earn salvation. We don't, we don't strive for this holiness that Jesus is describing here so that we earn God's favor. No, we do it because we want to be like our Heavenly Father. Well, if it's okay for God to do this, then it's okay for me to do this. If it's okay for Jesus to give all that he has to bless other people, then it's okay for me to do this. So he wants us to follow in his examples. We aren't to be tempting others to sin. I think there are three ways 
in which, as I, as I think about this, I think that there are three ways that we individually, individualistically can bring temptation into the community of the church. These are the things that I myself have struggled with and that I know others have struggled with. I think the first way that, that we individualistically can impact and cause others to sin with inside the church is f- first, living with an imbalanced view of sin. Meaning, we are either a law person or a licensed person, right? Like if we, we live under the law and we say, hey, to be a follower of Christ, you gotta follow all these things. You gotta go to church. You gotta make sure that your clothes are right. You gotta make sure that you're giving. You gotta make sure that all these things and, and you live under the law. Or you could be the person inside the church that lives under license and you're like, hey, I can do anything I want. Because the grace of God covers my sin, and it does. And I think that sometimes inside the church, when we live in both of those um, extremes, we cause others in the church to sin. If you're a law person, someone can look at your life and they could say to themselves, well, Jesus is unattainable. Right? I, I can't. I, 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 I can't be known by that Jesus because it, he's too different from me. He's too distant from me. Or if you're someone that struggles in the area of license, people are like, well, I don't want to follow Jesus because your life is no different than everyone else in the world. So why would I want to follow Jesus? You see, our lives do matter. And so our hearts should be to delicately balance those two knowing that God wants us to live in complete obedience but God doesn't want us to try and earn salvation. We don't earn it, we do it because of a grateful life. So I think it's possible for us individualistically if we have an imbalanced view of sin. Second, if we treat our opinions or our conscious conviction, conscious convictions as absolute truth. Right, realizing that each one of us are on a different part of our journey in life. And as you're seeking holiness, as you're seeking sanctification, being more like Jesus, that it's possible for us in different places to have different convictions at different times. But if we hold our consciences and convictions as absolute truth over the lives of other people, we can cause them to sin. And third, One of the biggest ways that I think that individualistically we can bring temptation into the community is by giving in to idolatry. Giving in to the worship of other things other than God himself. This can show itself up in materialism. It can show itself in different, different ways by giving ourselves way more over to our passions and our hobbies than to our walk with Christ. You see, the church, remember that in the church, your life is meant to be not lived in isolation, but lived in community. And your life, even your choosing to live in isolation, speaks something about what you believe about God. I hear people say this a, a, a lot. They're like, hey, I, I don't want to do the church thing because of that. Instead, I want to experience God on my own. I want to go out on Sunday morning. I don't need the church. I can go and experience God on the golf course or I can go experience God in nature. And all those things are true, but you're missing the purpose of what God has given us the church for. And the reality is, is that each one of us are hypocrites. Each one of us in our own lives cannot even measure up to the standard of perfection that scripture's talking about here. 
right? So it's easy. If you want to, you can come into my life and you can see, hey, Pastor Jeff's missing the mark here, 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 here. And you can make the list of all those things and use that as a, as a way to say to yourself, well, I've got license to descend. And I'm here to tell you that that's not my heart. I know I'm a sinful person. And the reality is the closer and closer we come to Jesus, the more and more we're aware of our sin. So the new believer is like, yeah, the Lord has just saved me of my sin. I feel amazing. I feel overwhelmed by the love of God. And that's great. But you're just scratching the surface of your sin. Because every believer is corrupt from head to toe. Our thoughts are corrupt. Our desires are corrupt. The way that we walk is corrupt. And it all needs correction. And it all needs to be transformed slowly by the power of Christ living in us. So as we live in this community, where Jesus is giving us the instructions here, woe to us so that sin or temptation to sin doesn't come through us. I would encourage you as a follower of Christ to take a quick inventory of your life. Realizing your life's not perfect. I know that my life's not perfect. I say things that I shouldn't say. I do things that I shouldn't do. But yet I know when it's brought to me, my heart's desire is to immediately, like, let's make it right. I want to confess it. But I want you to think about, like, your social media I want you to think about the way that you communicate in your home to your family. Are you building other people up? Or is your family a great place where where sarcasm reigns and you're constantly tearing people down? Like those things matter. The conversations that we have and the ways that we live matter. So we're not to lead others to sin. Second, today we are to lead by removing our own sin. Look with me in verse 18. Jesus says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life crip- ent- to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter, it, enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and thrown into hell a fire. See here, what Jesus is doing is he's shifting his language from talking about people in general to now specifically talking to his disciples. Jesus has used language like this before and other times when talking to his disciples. And Jesus is using figurative language here. Jesus is not using literal language. But he's using the figurative language so that his disciples would see the threat of sin is serious. It both, sin is so serious because it impacts your life now and it can impact your life in eternity. So instead of being silly with sin or playing with sin, that we take sin seriously and we do things about it in our lives so that it doesn't overwhelm us and cause us to take on sin in a way that would cause us to be judged eternally. His disciples, he's not asking his disciples to remove any of their body parts, but he's talking about the severity and the lengths they should go to seeking out and removing sin in their lives. The reason for this is that we're to remove, it's better to suffer temporary circumstances or consequences than eternal punishment. 
So therefore, we take sin serious. Remove it at any cost. The famous pastor, John Owens, famously said, we are to be killing sin or sin be killing you. You want to you be angry? You, you want to be vigilant? Fight against sin in your own life. Take on that battle. Don't, don't fight against your neighbor. Don't fight against your spouse. Don't fight against your kids. Fight against the sin that is ever present before you in your own life. That is a worthy battle. That is a battleground that is worthy of our action. See, so many times people, even today, are passive towards sin. Like, uh, it really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter if, if, I, if I skimp here or I lie here, as long as the ends justifies the means, right? That's what we're told. I don't have to worry about it. But sin keeps us from truly experiencing the life that God has for us. And with sin comes regret. Sin will not bring about the satisfaction that you desire. Sin will not bring about the safety that you desire. Sin will not bring about the intimacy that you desire. Sin brings regrets and sin brings shame. Always. Always, 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 always. So to play with sin or to allow sin and your uh, attitude toward it to be passive is to set yourself up for failure. The way that we deal with sin is to start fighting it at the moment of temptation. Right? We go back to James. What did James say? God doesn't tempt you, but temptation comes from your own desires. And when you give yourself over to those desires, that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And then when there's sin, there's death. So James tells us, hey, let's go back to the temptation part. When temptation comes, that's where the battle starts. When you start feeling in your life that what God has given me is not good or it's not enough, that's where you have to stop. And you have to go back and you have to start fighting in the battle. That's the battlegrounds. So that you don't even get to the point of sin. So how do we do this? Well, I think there are three things we can do. Four things we can do. First, begin with prayer. Like pray to God when you are tempted. Because our flesh is weak, God wants to be there to step in. He knows that we are weak to sin. He knows that if we give ourselves over to ourselves, we're going to choose to sin over being children of righteousness. So he says, come ask me. Pray to him. Say, God, I am weak. And we can see several places in scripture that we can call out. Matthew chapter 14, 30 tells us to cry out, Lord, save me. Matthew 15, 25 says, Lord, help me. Luke 17, 13 says, Jesus, have mercy on me. Psalm 116.4 says, O Lord, I pray, deliver me. Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Matthew 6.13, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Lord, provide a way of escape. Right? Is that your first response when temptation comes? 
Or do you like to flirt with temptation? Thinking that you've got willpower over it. Right? You're like, I'm, I'm strong enough. I can do it. I don't have to give in because there are times in which I have had willpower to give in. But temptation is ever present, ever seeking after you, trying to cause you to sin. And temptation itself is not a sin. Temptation is an opportunity for you to allow your desires to be put at the foot of the cross. So we pray when we feel that. When you begin to feel tempted, you pray and say, oh Lord, help me, oh Lord, save me, oh Lord, get me out of here. The second thing, and you can do it while you're praying, is you flee. Get away from the situation. Get away from the situation. Right, get as far away as you can in, the, in that time. If, you, if, if you're tempted in this way, get away. Get, like, remove it. Get away as far as you can. Third, call a friend. Have some accountability. Someone in your life should know your weak spots. Someone in your life should know when you're tempted the ways in which you get tempted. Like, I'm tempted to do this, or I'm tempted to do that. You get a friend and allow them to have that so that they know and can help keep you accountable. And then fourthly, to develop a long-term plan. And by that, what I mean is, again, know your weaknesses. Know that when you may be tempted to do something, have a plan in place. That, that means that so many times you can't, you can't wait until you're in it to be strong. Right? Instead, you've got to know that what's going to get you to there, and so you're making a plan to be back here. Another way of saying that, each one of us in our lives have a line. Right? It might be for the young person, it might be your purity. Uh, for a parent, it might be uh, financially. It might be something like this where you know that, like, hey, if I step over the line, it's sin. And so we place these lines in our lives, and guess what we try to do as humans? Our human nature is let's dance with the line. Let's see how close I can get to the line without going over it, right? And so we're like, okay, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and that's temptation. You're playing the, the temptation dance, and you're like, well, this is the line, oh, let's see how close I can get, and then you move back, and then eventually what happens is when you have the line here, you cross over it, and then you've sinned. When in reality, our line should be way back here, right? We've gotta know this is plan in the long term, plan back here, where you know that, hey, guess what? I'm gonna dance with this line too, but this line is way back there. And guess what? If I happen to fall over this line, guess what? I haven't sinned. I'm still keeping myself pure before the Lord. And so do the work of not sinning. Now let me explain this to you because we're coming in, if we just take this passage and we understand the gospel through this passage, it seems as though we can live a life of law, right? It can seem as though God wants us to live this way so that we attain salvation. And that's not, that's not the context of the greater understanding of the gospel. The greater understanding of the gospel is, is that you are a sinful person. I'm a sinful person and Jesus came to die on the cross for all of our sins so that we might experience forgiveness. That's the truth of the gospel. But as we, after we come to faith in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven now and the sins that we will do in the future, they're all forgiven. But God wants us to live this way so that we can be killing sin so that we can become more like him. Right? Look at the areas of our lives where there are stumbling blocks 
and seek to ask the Lord's help for removal. Let me show you, explain it in kind of a different way. And uh, This is an illustration I use with kids a lot, but I think it's really, really powerful. In life, let's imagine that your life begins as a jar full of white paint. And God's life is a jar full of white paint. Again, this is an illustration, so I know it has limitations. And if you were to, in the beginning, you were to mix those two paints together, what would happen? Nothing. But imagine that your pail of paint, every time you sin, there's a drop of black paint that gets mixed inside of your white paint. What color is your white paint going to become? Gray. And then the more you sin, more gray, more gray, the darker and darker and darker. Now imagine for a moment you in your sinful life try to have a relationship with a holy God. Can that happen? No, because what's going to happen is your darkness, your sin is going to come and corrupt God. Right? So that's why there's distance between us. That's why sin has to be punished. And so what did God do? Realizing that we are in our sinful state, loves us so much that he didn't want to leave us there, but instead sends us Jesus. Jesus comes to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for our sins, thus forgiving us. And then what happens when we come to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ? That old jar of gray or gray or blackened paint gets cleaned out, rinsed out, and gets filled with new white paint again. But it doesn't end there. When we come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, there's a lid that is put on top of that. Meaning that we can never ever be corrupted again. That our white paint, that we before God, God doesn't see our sin, instead God sees his perfection. He sees the work of Christ because it is Christ that has filled us. Not our old selves, our old selves are gone away. We've been filled with Christ and we've been sealed by the Spirit. But you say to yourself, okay, Pastor, well, what about sin then? Because I continue to sin. Well, what happens when you sin is those black paint, it starts accumulating on the top of the lid. It doesn't change you, but it still is, accumulates on the top of the lid. And what does that do? That creates distance between you and God. Not, not changing your nature, but creates distance. We can see this in a human example, right? Like when my kids sin, it creates distance between us. It doesn't make them stop being my child, right? They're still my child. Who they are is there, but that relationship begins to be severed because of sin. And it's not until sin is confessed and there's reconciliation and repentance made that our relationship is restored, same as it goes for us and God. That's why we have to continue to be killing sin because our sin, as it's accumulating on top of the, the top of our jar, that sin impacts others and it impacts our relationship with God. So what Jesus is getting to here is that he has done the mighty work of salvation in our lives, but sin still hinders us today. And so our response to that, because of the grace that God has given us, is that we should be people of confession and repentance. For when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning that that sin that is accumulated on the top of our jar, once again gets wiped away and relationship is restored. And then as sin begins to accumulate more and more, guess what we do? We confess and we repent, and it gets wiped away. And we continue in this process where over and over again, our gratitude towards God continues to grow because he's the one that's forgiving us. 
He's the one that's continuing to change us. He's the one that brings us more and more life. So today, I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what conviction has been coming as the Lord has been speaking to your heart. But I do know this, that in each one of our lives, sin accumulates. And our opportunity as followers of Christ is not to lead others into sin, um, but to confess when the Lord brings sin to mind, we confess it and we repent of it. That means that we turn away from it. We choose to walk in a different direction. So this morning, we're going to have a time before we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, for you just to do business with God. Maybe there's a sin that you've been struggling with, and I just want to give you an opportunity in the quietness of your heart to confess that to the Lord. Seek to repent of it and allow him to bring the cleansing that comes with it. And then, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, being reminded of the fact that our sin had a price, and Jesus paid it through giving of his life, through allowing his life, his body to be broken, and his blood to be spilled so that we could be forgiven. So we're going to celebrate that. But before we get there, let us take some time to seek the Lord through confession and repentance. And if you just need someone to pray with you, we do have a prayer team that's over here in the front that while we're taking these moments of silence um, to do, do business with the Lord, you can make your way over there and know that someone will be there to pray with you. So let's take just a few moments to be with the Lord. Father, this morning we come before you knowing that we each individually have violated your law. We've each rebelled against your design. We've each tried to seek to find our own path apart from you. And yet even in the midst of all of that, you still love us. Even in the midst of that, you still came to us. I'm reminded in your word that you have this promise that says that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Father, today we confess our lostness. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you for the cross where you took on our sin, you took on our shame, and you endured the wrath that was due us. Father, for that we are grateful. Father, it's a work that we couldn't do ourselves. 
but it's a work that you did because you love us. So now, Father, as we take this supper, as we're reminded of your broken body and your spilled blood, Father, allow us to just be grateful. Once again, allow the feelings and the joy of our salvation to come back in and to fill our hearts. For God, we don't deserve it, but you give it to us freely. And so for that, we say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.